Hello there, you're listening to the First Baptist Church of Oregon City podcast. I'm Pastor John Witham. This sermon, small, is from 3rd November 2019. The scripture is John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. Thank you for listening, and may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Here is the word of the Lord. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard, that John, heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here, is, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very true I tell, truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last Sunday evening, I was reminded of a, of a painful kind of month of my life. It was the fall of 2016, October of 2016. And throughout the course of the Major League Baseball playoffs, I kept hoping that the Cubs would be knocked out of the playoffs. See, I grew up three hours from Cincinnati, and my first exposure to baseball was my dad saying, you got to see this because the Reds were in the World Series. The year was 1990. 1990. That was a while ago. I think where you were in fall of 1990. And ever since then, I have been a live-or-die Reds fan, most of the time, die. (laughs) 
and the Cubs were always a rival. Now, if the Pirates were in the playoffs marching forward towards the World Series, I would have burned my house down. Um, but the Cubs were bad enough. And living in the greater Chicago area at the time, it was not easy. You couldn't go anywhere. We ate, we did not go out to eat for like a month because anywhere you went, if there was a television, people were there. They were out, they were gathered around their stupid tables wearing their stupid cub shirts and <laughs> breathing and shouting with every hit and run. And <sighs> it was exhausting. It was just miserable. And finally, it was the Cleveland Indians versus the Chicago Cubs. And I'm out on a ledge here because for a Reds fan, if there's a team that's worse than the Cubs or the Pirates to be in the World Series, it's the Indians. <sighs> and so here I am. We're, we were living in a, in a duplex we were on the bottom floor. We had a neighbor on the top floor, and it was game seven. It had gone all the way to the end, the farthest the series could possibly have gone to, game seven. And I think, all right, the pitching matchup favors the Indians. And it did not. And the bottom of the ninth, the Indians had a rally going. And I thought, all right, this is it. This is it. This is going to be the dagger in the heart of the Cubs fans. 108 years. Haha, <laughs> it's going to be 109. I thought, yes. And then they won. The Cubs won the World Series. <sighs> so they had a big parade. Now, as I said, 108 years. This, as, as I was reminded last Sunday, people were born, lived, and died without watching the Cubs win the World Series. Good, I say, but <laughs> you, you, you reap what you sow. And, and so uh, they had a big parade, and it was tremendous. The parade was so big, since they started counting these things, it was the eighth largest human gathering since they had to account for these things. The eighth largest human gathering. And it mixed in amongst the top seven, like five of them are the Pope, and then I think one of them is a Queen concert. I mean, I get it, but... So the crowd was there, and they were massive. And CNN was there, and, and I happened to be near a television at the time, and... And they're showing the parade, and I see this, this uh, you know, 20-something kid standing on top of its statue, and I was like, wait a minute, is that? And I saw, like, the, the, the guy had taken his hat off, and he had, like, shock red hair. There's a giant statue of Chief Alinawak in the middle of Grant Park in Chicago. And standing aloft, the statue of Chief Alinawak was Sam McKinney, one of my former youth group students, doing trust falls into the crowd off of this giant statue. That's not part of the illustration. You get that one for free. 
but they had this massive crowd gathering. And crowds are a big deal. You, you get a crowd together for joyous reasons, you know, like uh, anybody, most anybody winning the World Series. Uh, you know, the, there, there will be a crowd in Washington, D.C. this week at some point for the Washington Nationals winning the World Series this year. Hats off to them. Um, there, are, there will be crowds. There will be a big parade for whoever the Super Bowl winner is. There are crowds for sad occasions. Um, when when um, famous people, heads of state, uh, religious figures die, uh, there's a crowd gathering. A friend of mine was doing an internship in Rome, not too far from the Vatican, when a crowd began to gather very suddenly, and she saw nuns running down the street. Why are the nuns running down the street? And then she looked and saw white smoke coming from the Vatican chimney, and they had elected a new pope, and, and so a crowd gathered for that. And recently, we've seen crowds gathering in Hong Kong, um, demanding that their freedoms be maintained. And we have seen crowds gathering in cities of, of young people um, hoping to encourage political leaders uh, to make decisions that will help the environment instead of hurt the environment. And there are all sorts of reasons for crowds, and, and we like crowds, and we count crowds. You know, that one gathering was the eighth largest. Crowds are a big deal. Because crowds demonstrate strength. Love them or hate them, the Cubs will always have that line, or at least for the foreseeable future, will have that line, the eighth largest gathering of humans in history. It's a show of strength, and people get fired up about crowds. But if you're like me, you get a little nervous in a crowd, don't you? When a lot of people are crowded around you, you're in a, a tight and closed space, you get a little twitchy about that. Because you don't know what the crowd's going to do. Even if you're in a well-intentioned crowd, doesn't it just take three or four loud voices to kind of turn that crowd on its head? And suddenly this, this crowd of rejoicing or this crowd of mourning or, or this, this peaceable group of people who has shown up, suddenly are, we, we have a different term, and it's a mob. They, they, they become very angry, and, and they can inflict violence, and that's what I always think of when I'm in a crowd, for better or worse. Uh, and so generally I, I try to avoid crowds. Crowds... Crowds can be dangerous. And we know that as followers of Jesus as well as anything because on, on what we call Palm Sunday, there was a crowd that gathered to proclaim Jesus as king. They said, Hosanna, blessed is the name of he who comes in the name of David. They, they wanted David or Jesus to be a, a conquering king in the line of, of, and lineage of David. But when he wasn't, not even a week later, that same crowd, those same people were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And so we should be skeptical of crowds. But followers of Jesus also fall into the numbers game. 
when, when us pastors are huddled around the, the campfire and people say, oh, how's your church doing? Nine times out of ten, a number is provided as the answer. Isn't that strange? And, and I'm, I'm admitting faults of pastors, and I've done it before. You, you know, how did, how did something go? Oh, we had so many people. Well, that doesn't tell you anything really, does it? But we still do it, don't we? Is we like to have numbers, because if we feel like we have numbers, we feel like we have strength. We feel like we have power. We feel like we have importance, because there are this many of us, and we have this many on our side. But that doesn't always tell the whole story, does it? The numbers don't always translate into faith. And there's another temptation when it comes to numbers. It's the opposite of thinking that there's power when we're many, but we start to think that we're nothing when we're few. And I would argue that that's more problematic. Because when we look at the text today, we don't see Jesus gathering crowds, do we? Some objections one might raise is last week we read a scripture where Jesus gathered 72 people for mission. We might read in Acts chapter 2 where 3,000 people became followers of Jesus because of the impassioned preaching of Peter. Those are pretty big crowds. We remember where Jesus fed 5,000 people in the book of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. But in Matthew and Luke, he also feeds 4,000. So there are some big numbers here as well. But Jesus always embraces smallness. And we also should learn to embrace what God can do with just a few people. Because, see, there's 72, they got sent out, but two by two, they got broken down. We need to embrace being small as an opportunity to live out the ways of Jesus more clearly and more closely. Because I think the local church, the local street corner church, the local church that's meeting in high school and elementary school gymnasiums, the, the local church that's meeting in somebody's home, does not have to be hundreds and thousands of people to be faithful to the call of Jesus Christ. The local church just needs to realize that there's only one number that matters, and that's that we serve one God and three persons who is all the power and strength and might that we need. Jesus goes along, and he's met John, and they've met, they're related, cousins. And so Jesus walks along, 
and John hails Jesus as the Lamb of God. Now, John had disciples. It's not talked about a whole lot, uh, but John had disciples. He had people who uh, were in on his message as well, who helped him, who, who carried out his message. And we see some of them here. We see Philip. We see Andrew. Um, and we, we see what they're doing in this. And they hear Jesus' message. They are exposed to what John has said about Jesus. And so they come along. Now, if a hundred people had come along with Jesus, would he have had that time to spend with the hundred people? No. Would he have been able to take them back to where he was staying? Considering that Jesus was an itinerant preacher who went from town to town? No. He probably wouldn't have. They would have had a sign-up sheet. So Jesus spends the time that's necessary with these would-be disciples. And they see who Jesus is. And they see what Jesus is all about. And then Andrew goes and gets Simon Peter. <sighs> what an impact that had. Because Simon Peter would be the, the first person to declare Jesus definitively as you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are the chosen one of God. And Jesus says on this rock, Peter, you, Peter, I will build my church. And so Andrew goes and gets Peter because he spent this time with Jesus. And then Peter comes and meets Jesus. Then Philip, having spent time with Jesus, goes and gets Nathaniel. And they're very intentionally multiplying. But even by the end of this, even by the end of this passage, by the end of chapter 1, Jesus doesn't have his full group of 12 disciples, does he? We see the story of this many. And if you look at the next few chapters of the book of John, John chapter 3, Jesus meets with Nicodemus one-on-one. -on -one. John chapter 4, Jesus meets the woman at the well one-on-one. -on -one. And what do both of these leadings mean? What do both of these meetings lead to? But a group of people following Jesus. A group of people understanding the message of Jesus Christ better. That through Jesus Christ, God is fulfilling all of the promises of dwelling amongst his people. Through Jesus Christ, God is rescuing the world. And through Jesus Christ, God will set all things right. Amen? This is the message they're believing. But they're not doing it by the hundreds or the thousands. And Jesus resists the big crowds. In chapter 2, 
people start to have these whisperings about him being, you know, him being the Messiah, him being the conquering king. And it says Jesus won't have anything to do with it. Luke chapter 4, Jesus proclaims the year of the Lord's favor in the synagogue at Nazareth. And he says that the good news of God is for the whole earth, not just for the Jews. And a crowd tries to push him off a cliff. Crowds don't always work well for the message of Jesus. Yet, we a lot of times believe the lie that big is better. That we have to have numbers to have power, to have importance. But if our importance is contingent on numbers, we will always be so unimportant. Our importance is demonstrated by how well we serve, how much we love, and how we live out the good news of Jesus, that God is setting everything right. And so there are some trade-offs that we have to learn to make if we are going to be faithful and comfortable with however many people God brings into our midst. We have to learn to trade attraction for mission. Jesus drew in 72 people, but he sent them out two by two. When we try to draw in numbers, we may have the intention of letting people know like, yes, come in here, come, come sit down, learn about Jesus. But what we sometimes miss when we are trying to attract people in is the ability to share Jesus' message with them in a personal way that doesn't just address the, the longings of their soul, but their physical felt needs as well. It fails to address the whole person. It's easy to attract a crowd. But it's costly to invest time in just a few people. Takes a lot more work, doesn't it? If you don't believe me, talk to parents of two kids versus parents of four kids versus parents of ten kids. We have to trade acquaintances to be able to become family. There is a, a sociologist whose name I, I was unable to find, but he said that at most, the maximum number of interpersonal relationships that any one person is able to hold on to is 150. You max out at 150, and after 150, you can't keep up with, with everybody past there's 150 that people will fall off one way or another. With a small group of people who are faithful to living out the ways of Jesus, to living out the forgiveness of Jesus, to living out the hope of Jesus, in our midst, we are able to form a family that welcomes people into God's family. We are God's family 
but we are always looking for one more, aren't we? And so as we do this, we have to trade surface-level relationships for relationships that are ready to talk about difficult things, to grind out difficult conversations, to overcome differences, because that's what you do when you are family. But you can't do that with the, in the crowd. The crowd favors acquaintances. Christ favors family. You've got to trade numbers for stories. You've got to trade bragging about how many people you have for humbly recognizing what God is doing in your midst, in our midst. Because I do this as much as anybody else. Because I'm human. Just because I woke up and put on yet another flannel this morning does not make me any better than anybody else. There's a temptation to say, well, we, we've got the people that we've got. But a long time ago, not that long ago, I mean, it was sometime around May, God planted three little words in my head to encourage me for the journey. One of them was small. Because in a group of people, no matter the size, you're going to have stories of what God is doing. Because I'm not going to take anything away from churches that are in the thousands. Because God is working there as well. But there are stories. The difference is that in the crowd, the stories get lost and the numbers rise to the top. But when you're small, God's stories come out a lot more brightly, don't they? That light shines brighter in the darkness. Because we can see how God is moving. We can discern the movements of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Those 72 went out two by two into towns and proclaimed God's word and made more little pockets of believers everywhere they went. The 5,000 were fed in groups of 50. Why? So that the disciples could manage how many people they were feeding. Those 3,000 people at Pentecost were in Jerusalem for a celebration and then they went back to where they were from and they formed house churches. And those churches eventually started branching off and forming more churches. And pretty soon there were movements of God's people in towns like Corinth, in towns like Rome, Ephesus, Philippi, Galatea, Thessalonica. All of the letters we have from Paul 
in the New Testament are places where God's word broke out through the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. We should never look down on ourselves because we are small, but rather we should look to the one who looks at us and sees family, the family of God, rejoicing and praising God together for being called out of the darkness and into the wonderful light. Amen.